Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Cup Interviews, brought to you by Cup of Hemlock Theater. I am your host for this episode, Ryan Barakovich, and even though we very often cover our local Canadian theater scene, more specifically localized to Toronto, we often like to expand our geographic borders to people on the other side of the Canada-US border, which brings us to the very exciting team of interviewees that I have for you today. They are all members of the Improvisational Repertory Theatre Ensemble, or IRTE, and they are here today to talk about their upcoming production of The Lonely Death of L. Harris, which is happening in New York City, currently happening at time of release, but not yet begun at time of recording. So I'm so happy to have all of you here. I might just allow you to introduce yourselves because we're a bit of a large group, so I will call upon you in a running order, but please tell us your name, your role in IRTE and on this production itself, and what is in your cup, because that's how we always like to begin. So Nanette, I'll begin with you. Oh, hi, I'm Nanette DC, and I am the artistic director and founder of IRTE, or Birdie, as we sometimes call it. And for The Death of Lonely Harris, I came up with the original concept. Not the very original concept, but we'll get into that. And I'm also a cast member playing various roles, like the investigator, med student, auctioneer, and a funeral attendant, and of course, Elle Harris. Okay, great. Thank you. Robert. Oh, and what's in your cup? Oh, oh, my I'm cup. not letting yeah. you off the hook that easy. Oh, oh, yeah. No, I'm drinking this. I have a gin and tonic. <laughs> gin and tonic. Beautiful. Yep. Great. Thank you. All right, Robert, you're up. Hi, I'm Robert Baumgartner, and I'm the, called the executive director of Erdy, whatever that entails. And I'm the director of The Lonely Death of Ella Harris. And I'm really glad that I'm here. This is fun. And in my cup is some bourbon. Okay. And ice. That's great. Okay. We're starting off strong with hard alcoholic beverages. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Evie, we'll go to you next. Oh, hi. I'm Evie. And in The Lonely Death of L. Harris, I'll be playing a variety of characters, including a funeral attendee, a superintendent, and some other things. Mm -hmm. And in my cup today, which is a very special Avatar souvenir cup. I have grape soda. Okay, great. Your she's, cup is... Yeah, please, Nanette. She forgot to add, she's also Elle Harris. Okay. Oh, yes, I'm also Elle Harris. <laughs> How did you forget that you play the titular role? <laughs> oh, and you brought your mask, which is great. And you also have such a lovely tropical background for those only listening to this in the audio-only podcast format. It looks like Evie is on some kind of beach, yet wearing a toque, which is a very thick choice of hat for the setting. My ears are cold. <laughs> yes, as they should be on a beach. Okay, next up we have Sam. Hi, I'm Sam Katz. I'm a guest performer with IRGE. I play, let's see, a police officer, a legatee, which is a very strange word for somebody who inherits something from someone else in this case, Al Harris. I also play a Rikers Island inmate and assortment of other characters that are going to be created improvisationally. And in my cup, it's just a bottle of water. But now that I see Nanette and Robert are going hardcore, I may excuse myself to get a glass of wine this evening. Sure, please do. <laughs> but it's okay. Oh, now. Yeah, no. You can stay hydrated with your water or you can let loose a little. The choice is yours. We don't discriminate. I'm on a cell phone, so I may just walk while yeah. everybody's talking. I they, can do 
I can walk and talk at the same time. <laughs> they call it a mobile device for a reason. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Vicki, you're next. Yeah. Hello, I'm Vicki Martin. I'm a performer in The Lonely Death of Al Harris, and I play the med examiner, the realtor. I am also a Rikers inmate and plot twist, also Al Harris. <laughs> and then in my stock month coffee mug, I have nice. Diet Coke. Cheers. Nice. It's great. Hey, thank you. And last but certainly not least, John, you're up. Hi, I'm John Munnelly, and I play the guitar in this piece. And I play John Munnelly playing the guitar. Great. Four songs. <laughs> nice. And in, I got involved in this through my kind of sort of actual cousin, Nanette. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I mean, I've known my other cousin, her sister, before this, and then I met um, an effort. Yeah. And um, mostly I come from a musical uh, songwriting sort of thing. And, and in my cup tonight is fizzy water with, with uh, pomegranate juice. Wow. That's great. Is that in a mason jar? And, and yes, I'm, I'm collecting these. These are the Bon Mammon. Um, I'm going to put something in these sometime. Oh, great. It's a, it's a, a reuse of the jam jar. <laughs> Fantastic. Reduce, reuse, recycle. And I, just to finish this off, I am drinking from my The Cup Cup. Hey, that's the show you're watching and or listening to right now. And I have decaffeinated coffee in it. So I'm <laughs> going <Dangerous>. wild. <laughs> yes, living <laughs> dangerously. So, yeah, before we get too far into this production itself, I want to just talk about a you know, each of you a little bit, because we're all artists of some kind or another. So maybe we'll just begin by telling us a little about yourselves personally. How did you first get into theater? Maybe some of your relevant previous training, other projects, experiences, the floor is yours. And maybe we'll go in that same sequence again. So Nanette, you can go first. Oh, gosh. Okay. So I've been an actor in New York for a long, long time. I've always been interested in theater and I think I first discovered improvisation watching shows at Chicago City Limits. And then I started taking classes with, I mean, I've always studied theater and acting. I went to college in at Columbia in, in the city and took acting classes all around as wherever I could. But then I found improv later on and discovered, oh, this is terrific because it's so freeing and fun and funny. So I Started studying and doing shows at places like Hotham City Improv and UCB in the pit and with master teachers who would come into the city at A&D, such as Michael Gilman and Dave Rosowski and gosh, I'm blanking. So then I'm going to just kind of go on and on. And then eventually I discovered, well, you know what? I can always create my own characters, my own shows, what I want to do because I've got you know, it's fine to audition all the time, but then sometimes you realize, oh, wait, I can just make the show myself and cast myself and play whatever I want and come up with it. It's an improv. So I had been members of so many different companies, theater companies, improvisational companies that I came up with. I decided to do Erty, but I wanted to do something a little bit different that wasn't just a lot of the typical traditional improvisational theater that I was seeing in New York at the time. And I wanted to combine a bit of what I liked about traditional scripted theater with improvisation. So we do a lot of, we do a lot of structured improv where we have a world, a structure, an outline, a bit of a story, but we just don't know how we're going to get to the different places. And sometimes we have 
characters coming into it that we developed through workshops and through rehearsals that we can plug in and work with each other. And sometimes we come up with characters in the moment. So that's a bit of me. That's great. Thank you so much. Robert, tell us a little about yourself. Yeah, well, I'm directing this, but I really started out as an actor in this theater world, like down in North Carolina. I was living down there, going to school and gotten involved in community theater and sort of liked it so much, I decided I needed to learn more about this. So I went to theater school down there and then came up to New York and, you know, studied with some great people and did a bit of regional theater and things like that. And then then later got involved in improv at mostly Gotham City Improv and Pitt, the People's Improv Theater here in New York. And started okay. directing. I forgot to mention Actors Studio. And yes, I became a member of the Actors Studio here in New York too. And so am involved with them too. And the directing part, I guess I've directed mostly improv pieces, but some like a play and a solo show of a Japanese actor who came here and put together a solo show for himself. So I directed that and helped him with it. But now directing and also I'm performing improv too with Ernie when I'm not directing the show. The show. Great. That's my passion. That's great. Thank you. Evie. Well, it all started when I was five years old <laughs> doing the ladybug club shows in my backyard. And I just loved to perform and sing and dance and make up songs. So yeah, I did a lot. We, you know, my school had a, my high school had a very good theater program. A shout out to Jeff Bennett, my theater director in high school, gave me my love of theater. I ended up going to Syracuse University for musical theater. And in my high school program, I wrote that eventually I wanted to sing and dance on Broadway, hopefully in a show. <laughs> so that was already I was hilarious even in high school so and in in college I kind of dabbled in um stand-up comedy but I didn't have an act so I would do like other people's material like I would do Eddie Murphy's material and like Marsha Warfield like you know because I just thought it was so funny and that's how a lot of comics get started is doing other people's material so, but then I started getting into improv and I was at Gotham City Improv. That's how I know uh, Nanette and Robert. Red Tie Mafia, Nanette directed yeah. that too. And those were other improv groups. And I also work with Cherub Improv now. And we do improv shows at, you know, senior centers and hospitals. And we do free shows for people who can't get out to see shows. But since the pandemic, you know, we haven't been doing too much, but we're starting to get back into it. We're doing a lot of stuff on Zoom with, with people, so. Great, thank you so much. Okay, Sam. My path has been very strange. I'm probably the oldest person doing improv in New York. I only got involved in improv in 2011. My performing aspirations were, is a word I would use to describe it. Way back in, my, in the beginnings of my career, I was in radio. And I literally was traumatized out of 
out of my career by an alcoholic drug addict named Don Imus, who he's dead. I'm still here so I can talk about him at NBC in New York. And I went on to do a lot of other things. I ran the largest student film awards program in the country in the 1980s before you were born. And then I got very involved in my community in New York City and became involved in law enforcement. And that's what I do professionally. I'm a writer for a labor union of police detectives. And when I started revisiting my original intentions to perform, even though it had been on the radio and in 2010, I sort of reacquainted myself with my original intentions and decided to go back to everything in a completely different way. And in 2011, discovered improv in New York. I got involved with artistic, artistic new directions. And by 2014, I met Nanette and Robert at, at the workshop of Michael Gelman, who was a Canadian, very famous for having been the artistic director of Second City Chicago for many years, like a quarter of a century. And I have been guest performing with Ernie since 2014. Uh, with Nanette and Robert, and I absolutely love it. And um, of course, we had a little downtime during the pandemic, but we're back and I just have a blast. It's really a fantastic troupe, completely innovative, very different from some of the other stuff I did in New York with it. I, I think it's the most unique troupe around. And I'm not just saying that so I get cast again. I'm really saying that because the shows are themed. There's an array of a dime store and found object props for inspiration. There's a structure to the show, but everything is really created on the stage around the theme, the characters, and the structure with, of course, a musical guest. And then Miss Show, the great John Munley. And we have a blast. And it's been a way to ease back into the consciousness of performing. I'm probably one of the only people who got thrown out of acting in college. I, and that actually happened. I was cast in college and the professor threw me out of acting. And someday I hope to get on an award stage somewhere, you know, publicly say her name. And by the way, she's also dead and I'm still here. So We could use this platform to publicly say your name. I know I'm not giving you an award, but you know, <laughs> oh, this, the name, floor is her yours. Name, her, <laughs> name was, her name was Carol Bellini oh, Shaw. And she, I, I went to what's now Hamilton College. It was the original women's college was Kirkland. It's now Hamilton. She taught there for like maybe 30 years. For 40 years. And I, I just want to tell this one story really quickly. I was in an A&D workshop and a young man was there and uh, people were performing. And Scotty Watson, who ran Artistic New Directions. Oh, uh, yeah. Shout out to uh, Scotty Watson, who's a great teacher. Yeah, again. shout out to Scotty. He's a great teacher. He's still teaching. And he, he asked for a location. And a kid in the crowd screamed out, Clinton, New York. And that's a town in upstate New York where Hamilton is. And I looked at him like, did you go there? And he said, yes. I said, I'll talk to you after the show. And after the show, I found out he also left the school 40 years later 
because of the same professor. So that just goes to show you. I'm you noticing know. a pattern here. I'm <laughs> yeah. noticing a pattern. I love Hamilton completely, except for the theater department. Um, like but I did do stage work and there. And, you know, there was just a long hiatus of 35 years before I got back on the stage. But I'm back. Why did she throw you out? I want to know that. I feel like there's a story missing here. You know, there is a story missing. And I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I was laughing in class with my girlfriend. She always also got thrown out, but she wanted to be a graphic designer in his. We got thrown out for laughing at something that was very funny. How dare uh, you? And one of the, and amazingly enough, obviously decades later, you learn in any theater class that if something happens on the stage, the audience saw it. So you have to deal with it. And even though we were in a workshop, what happened was this, a young woman was doing the miracle worker and she was playing Helen Keller and she wore glasses and she flung around and flung around and they went down to the very tip of her nose like this, but they never fell off. <laughs> we were, we were laughing and stifling our laughter and they, and, and she threw us out instead of doing what she should have done, which say, push them up or Helen Keller's blind, take <laughs> off your glasses. glasses. <laughs> she was exactly. Hello. That ain't going to help you, Helen. <laughs> it's not going to help you. you know? And we just could not stop laughing and we got thrown out and I thought it was just for the class. It turned out to be of theater. Wow. And uh, I was cast by Hamilton, however, but that was a different story. And and that's the truth is that there are people through the decades who really should not be teaching theater, mm-hmm. and they do. And it wow. took me a long time True. to get over it. And I, yeah, one day you will get that award and you can tell this whole story again while they play the music and try to usher you off. But I'm happy <laughs> yeah. to give you the space to tell it in full here. So thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Vicki, let's hear your origin story, if you will. Sure. So, like, the first six years of my life, I grew up in Texas, like, around Fort Worth. And I grew up in, like, this little neighborhood. And I was literally the only girl in, like, this neighborhood of kids. And so my mom was like, okay, we need to, like, have you, you know, interact with that. So she put me in, like, dance class. And I love dance. I did, like, you know, tap, jazz, all of that, like, up until high school. And then when I got to high school, I started doing like, and I was really lucky. I went to Charlotte High School. We moved to Florida, like when I was around six. And I was lucky in that at Charlotte High School, there was a really great theater and choir program. Shout out to Cheryl Wall, a few theater teacher. She's amazing. But anyway, like the whole time I was there, we, you know, we'd have like two plays, we'd have one big musical, we would have like a 24 hour play festival, a one act festival. It was really great and did, you know, anything I could, audition for whatever I could in high school. And then my junior year of high school, we did the Laramie Project, which are you guys familiar with that? Yes, little very familiar, yeah. yeah. And I auditioned and it was literally only eight actors with, you know, we all playing multiple roles. And I remember it was like a weird kind of time my junior year of high school and I remember I looked at the list and I was like oh my god I got on it and I was really excited you know we were working on the show the crazy thing about the Laramie project I don't know if they still have to do it 
But whenever there's any sort of production happening anywhere, you have to sign a waiver with the acknowledgement that the Westboro Baptist Church might try to actually protest your production, which they have done a lot because they're horrible. <laughs> and so, anyway, it, you know, we were working on the show, and I remember it was like opening night. Our director was like, you know, talking to us about the show, and it, personally for me, it's my absolute favorite play. I would love to be able to do it professionally someday it was really interesting in that they were real people this is what they were really thinking you know and this is their actual words in the script and it was so interesting and I remember you know opening night we were all talking about it and then she was like she looked at me on Mrs. Wall and she was like you know Vicky like theater can really tell a story and like up to that point you know I was like oh, well, like, I like doing theater. I like doing, you know, musicals and singing. It's fun. But in that moment, it really hit me of like, are we allowed to curse on here or no? We try to keep it PG-13, so one F-bomb for the whole episode. Use it wisely. Yeah, <laughs> I will save that then. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in the back of my mind, when she told me that, I was like, oh my God, like, theater can really tell an emotional story. And for all of us who were working on that play, and how heavy it was. And for like a lot of us, that was literally the first time we had ever done anything that heavy. It really, it was a beautiful experience. It was amazing. And that that point I was like, oh my God, like I want to do, you know, like I want to do theater. I want to do musicals. I want to do all of this. And then my senior year, I auditioned for the American Musical and Dramatic Academy in New York. Got it. So it was literally like graduated. And then like six months later, just like completely moved to New York, like 19. And it was just like a crazy experience because I came from like a very small town. And then I was like in a town of like millions and millions of people studying musical theater. And then when I graduated, I was lucky in that I was a part of this small theater in like New Jersey. I did a kid's show with them where I was a dragon, which it's fun that I can put on my resume. What was it? It was a Tale of the Dragon's Tale role, dragon, which is always The fun. title role. <laughs> the title role, the dragon. And then was lucky to do like other random shows that they would have there. And then <laughs> the actual company, Black Rocks Performing Arts Center, had this show called Kip and Riff Has Not So Kosher Wedding Experience, which essentially what it is, if you know Tony and Tina's wedding, it's literally that, but just like a giant orthodox wedding. And it was definitely like, I'm going to say top five, like, funnest shows I ever did. Because that was the first, I mean, you know, like, in our conservatory, we did, like, slightly touch on improv. But it was really, you know, it wasn't really, like, a focus on the track I was in. So it was like, we came up with these crazy characters. I played for most of the shows, like the best friend of the bride and it was such a fun experience it was like you know things were said in that it was supposed to be like an orthodox wedding so you know when people are coming in they're greeting the bride you know the wedding would happen then the food then like the little dance party like those were set moments but then everything around it was improvised and it was so fun and I remember once and also to put it in perspective Black Box Performing Arts Center when I was working there. It was like this tiny little black box near like That's a supermarket. It, yeah. yeah, it was like near a supermarket and like a bar, like, you know, in the middle of like a parking lot, but it was a really fun space. And I remember once my friend, she played the bride. One time she was acting as if she was like a runaway bride. And so she ran out of the theater into 
the parking lot. And like, we're both in character. I ran after her. And there was also this small town. Everything would kind of be like closed on Sunday. I remember she was like running to like this closed supermarket. And there was this poor family just like walking to their car. We're both these basically Muppet characters. Like, and they're not even, they're not even going to see the snow. They're just going to like go home. And I ran up to them in character. I was like, also, we had really bad, like, the whole story was basically, it's these people from New York who are like, in this, you know, unfortunately get this crappy little like theater as their wedding. And so we all had really cheesy, fake New York accents. So I ran up to this family. I was like, oh my God, you gotta help me. Like she's trying to run away. And literally the mom, and of course my friend was like, I'm scared. I don't want to marry him. The mom of the family, and she didn't realize we were actors. The mom of the family came up to my friend. And the funniest thing is I had it on for some reason, I was doing a Facebook Live as my character. <laughs> so I have it on video of this woman coming up to my friend and being like, honey, I know you're scared. It's going to be the best day of your life. My friend like in character being like, I don't know. She's like, no, you're really going to love it. She's like, are you certain? She's like, yes, go get married. And then we ran back and we were like, thank you. And to this day, I don't think she realized you were. And then the very last show, we had to do a switch because he was coming in a little bit later. So like... I was the bride and she was like the best friend of like the very last show. And like I said, crazy stuff would happen every night. One of the characters was like the Wiccan sister of the groom. And so there were <laughs> nights she would take a bunch of the audience members and they would all howl at the moon for good luck. Like the show's crazy. It was nuts. But the very last night we had switched. I was bride. She was best friend. And somehow we got with all of us cast members, the audience. And also when the audience was coming in, It'd be like, oh my God, this is, you know, cousin Mike, cousin Mike, you know, like we kind of set him as like whatever family member for that show. But we managed to get like a giant conga line of the audience, of us, got out of the theater, this tiny little black box theater, into the parking lot. And there's this bar that was near the theater called the Dog House. And we managed to get the conga line. And mind you, people like, the supermarket family, these people are just here eating and drinking. Like, they have no idea what's coming. And so we took this giant fake wedding conga line into this bar. And what was even greater is, like, everyone's, you know, they're like, yeah. And people saw me in the outfit. And they're like, oh, my God, congratulations. I was like, thank you. I just got, like, it was, it was such a wild, crazy show. And that was the first time I ever really did, like, a heavy, heavy improv show. And I was like, oh my God, this is a lot of fun. I kind of want to continue doing this. And then I was looking up classes from different theater companies in New York. And that's when I realized musical improv is a thing. And I was like, oh my God, I, that's what I, that's me. That's what I have to do. And so I started taking musical improv classes at Magnet Theater, which then kind of transitioned into like full on like improv addiction. And then yeah, I don't know. I had started a horror theater company with a friend like around 2019. It was really fun. We got a bunch of cast members. Like it was a small kind of little collective. And basically what our show was, it was called The Monsters You Meet in the Dark. And it was two horror one act. And it was performed at Trinity Church in Brooklyn, which is also so fun to do it in a church. But we opened March 2020. <laughs> Yeah. So we managed to get through, I think, like, the weekend. We canceled the very last show when things 
we're clearly ramping up. But like right around that time, I actually auditioned for Ernie. Mm. And yeah, it was originally like this was going to be the original first show. And I remember we all had this sort of sit down talk of like, oh, yeah, this will be fun. This will be fun. This will be fun. And then the next week, all theater was shut down. <laughs> and so, yeah, then, I, you know, it was I mean, all artists kind of felt like this weird sort of immediate disconnect you know and for human pincushion we were planning on doing like stuff in the summer but clearly not a good idea so instead we started doing like online like we would call them like one or two minute screens i think like short short you know like improv clips that were easy to like rapid film send it out started doing like radio plays which was a lot of fun i was lucky to direct one of the radio plays and like i cast you all the cast members it was fun you didn't cast me i didn't know you at the time <laughs> oh get in your time machine and cast sam retroactively yes, come on really? <laughs> yeah but it was fun i can't remember the name of it but i remember just because of like who could do what voice the main Basically what it is, it was like crotchety, like old woman, like just called a bunch of people and then like she pisses someone off and then she gets murdered. Like, but I remember just because of who could do what voice, there was someone in the cast named Killian who could do like an, like man is an incredible voice actor, but he could do like a sort of like old man kind of like raspy voice needed for the character. I was like, great, perfect. You're this character. Everyone else, blah, blah, blah. But then when I was editing the script, it was originally a female and I fully lost my mind with the amount of like every single line I had to change to make it work. And then, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's my crazy kind of accent. brings us to the present. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> comprehensive play by play. And last but not least, once again, John, I know you started telling us some of your relationship to theater via music, but the floor is yours if you'd like to get into a little more detail. Brilliant. It's great being here and learning so much more about the people I'm interacting with in Arky. So thanks all of you guys. You're very interesting. I can't deal with all your interesting bits right now, but lots of other stuff I'll talk to you about when we get in the room again together. So for me, what was some memories like you're all digging in for memories. So I have two early memories of I'm not really a theatre guy. I'm not really coming from a theatre background. I come from Ireland, actually, in a small border town. And the border is a liminal place. It's kind of, we get a lot of what's known as characters in the border. So I'm always, you could call them zany, quirky, people who just are living for their own lives and follow a different path and a different drumbeat. So there's, we're surrounded by this and I kind of like that. And I think there's a bit of that in the improv world too. You know, there's these characters coming out of it. Characters being invented on the fly where, they're, where the rules are set just a moment ago. So I do remember just now, the memory came to me when I was listening to all you guys about being in national school. I was in national school, out in a country school, two-room national school. Father was the teacher and the other woman uh, was the younger teacher. But she asked me to go on stage and mine to the laughing policeman. I don't know if you know that one, Sam. <laughs> anyway. My mother stamped that down. I don't know why. Envy, jealousy, crazy mother. But anyway, she said, well, wouldn't it be better if you sang the song? But anyway, so I failed to go on stage at that time. So the next time I was going to go on stage was when I was about 14. And instead of going to learn Irish in the west of Ireland, 
because I didn't get a scholarship for it. I went to the local vocation school and met cosmopolitan, gorgeous French girls and boys who dress so beautifully. And I was sort of embarrassed about my countryman's clothing amongst these cosmopolitan Parisians. But anyway, we had a little theatre, and what they did was I was the, the character who had to stagger on, and they'd be pushing my hair to turn my hair grey. So that must have been how. Yeah, and you never washed it out. Yeah, it's I'd still stagger there. Stagger on. <laughs> huh? Never washed the talc out. It looks like I it's still in there. The talc out or, or After all these years. The <laughs> so anyway, I, as a 14 year old boy, stagger on, say something about being murdered and touching my breast like a. a a silent movie star and fall over. I don't know whether I had to speak in French or, or I'd been murdered or something. But anyway, that was my first run in with the theatre. And after that, it was pretty much rock and roll for me after that, playing nice. loud guitars and writing songs. So really, I come from a songwriting point of view hmm. and um, love songwriting, educated, love. I followed that sort of path. I went I've been in Vancouver, actually, went to an amazing, one of the most amazing song education experiences I ever had was in Vancouver, watch, uh, Vancouver in Canada. Yeah. Fabulous. Seven days in, in the trees in, I guess you call it glamping, kind of fancy camping, right? Yeah. And a kind of a lovely canvas tent as if I was out in some sort of army or something, but I had it to myself. And that was the week I gave up coffee. And I was really horrible to people for the first two days. And then I was really nice to people <laughs> for the rest of my life. So, um, yeah, I gave up coffee that you week. You gave up I, coffee on a camping trip? Wow. Well, professional wow. songwriting camp. So, <laughs> fancy, um, camping. fancy camping. Fancy camping. Fancy camping, <laughs> exercising, songwriting and stuff, you know. <laughs> and meeting very high-end people really understood concepts and brought me into a new world of knowing about all the structure and form and feel and what's going on, my God. So I really dug into being a professional songwriter and in between <coughs> giving up coffee and making my living as a IT sort of was kid. So then I sort of started skirting around theater because I was in audio and learned how to be a professional audio guy and people would want, oh, can you help me with my play? I needed somebody to, to do the sound effects for my play. So I'd be pressing the button for gunshots and lightning and switching on the lights. So I was sort of either doing sound for fairly professional theatres here around the city. And also then my improv or acting experience came from people I knew. Again, I like that zany sort of thing like the Mighty Boosh and shows like that or the IT crowd. I like humour and I like just having lighthearted fun and some quick, quick beats. And so I got drawn into doing a movie with Troma released a movie called Hectic Knife. And another thing I wanted to do was I wrote a song to suit the mood and it was taken on board and put in with the, the movie, which is the thing I like doing with RT2. You try and find spaces where my songs can emotionally capture and bring extra to have a reason for the song to be there, hopefully, rather than just be a placeholder in between something else happening. Mm -hmm. I feel that in this show, that's happening with maybe most of all the shows uh, Nanette has conceived. So anyway, I was in that hectic knife thing and also my other acting experiences. There's a British thing called gurning, which means pulling faces. And so I was involved with this girl who, a boy, it's not... Anyway, so the thing they wanted from me was to do a lot of pulling faces as Poe. You know Edgar Allan Poe? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Nevermore. Yeah. yeah, Edgar Allan Poe. So I used to have to do a lot of faces and gesticulations and sort of lots of this kind of histrionic overacting. And she loved it. And she made me grow a mustache and we'd spend half an hour or an hour just looking at my mustache before we even started film. She loved my mustache. But I was okay. It was a mutual admiration. My society was fine. I loved the mustache a bit, but not as much as she loved the mustache. He, they, sorry. And, um, that's a bit of, so I would have to, so that's a tiny bit of anything. I went to no school to learn anything about improv or acting. So like everything else I've picked up in my life, I sort of had to fall. And uh, as I fell, learn it as I go. And uh, that's technology, music, everything I did, I had to sort of learn really on my own. Except songwriting, I did study songwriting now pretty hard. Great. And so here I am with Artie and I do like it. And. I'm very happy that uh, Nanette and Co. welcome me to the show and um, my contributions to it. I yeah, think well. it gives me a plugged out experience mm-hmm. and I am, I feel good about it. I'm not always perfect and that imperfection is good and I can interact with the audience and stop and start and they can shout things at me and throw cabbages and <laughs> it's all part of the fun and I think the container of improv suits me. And I like I like being in it as a musician. Um, sometimes in the last show where we brought, I had, had even some speaking roles. And I, I can't remember <laughs> the, the lines. But we drew you know, into it. Don't be yeah. hungry. Yeah. hungry and chained up anyway. But I liked it anyway. <laughs> I think that's enough. Did I cover everything? We played the uh, last musician on earth in our last show. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully people don't throw cabbages at the last musician on earth. <laughs> no, metaphorically. <laughs> Yeah, they're not allowed. They're not allowed in the theater. No, I'm in the food industry, so we don't like to waste food. That's (laughs) that. That's a very wise. Well, thank you all so much. This has been so lovely hearing all of your journeys, and it seems like you've all learned something about each other. What you didn't spend the first few weeks of rehearsal going over your entire backstory in the theater? (laughs) Wild. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's the thing about Artie is that there are only four rehearsals we do we do it stumble through and then four more rehearsals so 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 there isn't a whole lot of time (laughs) we have a brainstorm session before we even start where we all get together and just pass around ideas of what we could do and how we could make the show take some shape and so maybe four and a half i don't know (laughs) anyway i'm happy to have provided this platform for you to all learn a little more about each other and me in the process and all of our listeners (laughs) <laughs> so thank you. Uh, Might be me. I was just a musician, so I'm maybe a little more distant from the central cookery. Of- you know, you're part. You're central. You are oh. central. And yeah, we're looking forward to hearing more about your music later in the interview. But for now, uh, Nanette and Robert, as the founding members of Erty, do you pronounce it like a soft I, Erty? Or is it like art, like the word art? <laughs> no, Erty. Erty. Rhymes with flirty. Flirty. Oh, seductive. Uh, so as the founding members dirty. of our, yeah, <laughs> flirty and dirty and dirty. You've started talking about how the company came together. Is there a little more you'd like to say about that origin story or artistic mandate? Or should we jump right into the lonely death of Al Harris? I was about to be like, nope. No, it's up, it's up to you. You did a good job. Yeah, I kind of went on forever. It's fine. No, it was basically, I'd been a part of so many different theater companies and the artistic director of other improvisational theater companies and i kind of found like when it's not yours when you, 
you can't make the changes that you can't make all the changes that you want to that you see as being very necessary or very interesting to you. So it was like, ding, 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 just do your own thing and start a company. So I yeah, as I said, I wanted to take a theater company and combine what I was seeing from improv in the city with what I liked about traditional scripted theater so that there was some structure, some stories, some theatrical elements, but it's very inspired by like the alternative indie comedy scene of the late 90s, ridiculous theater company, that sort of thing where we have, as Sam was talking about, we have like dime store props and very broad characters and some costuming, but it's always very broad and ridiculous. So you have the feeling that everything's grounded the acting is grounded in reality. There is a grounding of reality, but at the same time, everything is so silly and strange that the audience is allowed to let go of expectation of realism. So that's kind of what I wanted to do with this company. That's great. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. So that brings us to the present in this particular show you're doing now, The Lonely Death of El Harris. So let's hear the elevator pitch. How would you describe the show to somebody who might be interested in seeing it but needs a little more information? Okay, well, it's a darky comic theater piece. It was very, it's loosely inspired by a New York Times article from 2015 called The Lonely Death of George Bell, which I read in a lot of people wrote this article. Yeah. and. It was very effective. It stayed with me for a long time. And I was like, well, this could be an interesting theater piece. So it made me start to think about, well, for people who have not read the theater piece, it's about a, 70, a 72-year-old man who died in his apartment. And over the years, he had isolated himself and cut off ties to family and friends. So he basically died alone with no next of kin, nobody really knowing about him. and then what happens to that person and just really the mechanics of what has to happen in the city of identifying you can't just assume who the body is you have to identify the body through medical records etc cetera, etc cetera, trying to track down people who knew him then where does it go from there for the medical examiner how where are you buried etc 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 and it brought up issues of who are you <laughs> if who tells your story and if there are different People who knew you or don't know you at all, who you are really varies from person to person to person. And we are all those people all at once. So it's almost dealing with it's dealing with issues of not just mortality, but also of identity. And we can be all these different people all at once. So in a way, we often talk about parallel universes. When that actually happens in real time in the real world, we do live in parallel universes because everybody knows a different you. So there are parallel lives. So who you are and what happened to you really changes depending on who's telling the story. And not one is false, not one is true. They're all true and they're all false all at the same time. So I found that very interesting. I wanted to do something about that. Yeah, yeah. The I'm going to say that this newspaper article, which is like the seed for this, is really talks about this process of that the city that city workers go through, and when they discover essentially a John Doe, and have to try to figure out who he is, and then what they do, and I think something that's developing. In rehearsals for this 
show is, well, you know, Vicky has a mask there. I think you saw Abby's mask. And each person takes on this person, this Al Harris role at certain points. And to me, it's really starting to sort of show that we can all identify with this person, whoever he is, whoever they are. And it's that's something that's really interesting to me to see it growing and blossoming like, like this through rehearsals. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, this actually, I think you've already kind of addressed the inspiration for the piece, but it's something you've touched on here, it relates to a question I was going to ask a little later, so you might as well skip ahead to it now, since you brought it up, that how do you think the form of improv in particular relates to the themes of this piece? Because it does deal with, you know, having, I, I did actually read the article in preparation for this interview, which was exciting. And now just hearing like how, yeah, it does relate to death and mortality and, you know, identity and this bureaucratic infrastructure that will consume us all in the end. I wonder, you know, we tend to associate improv with comedy. And you said that your company does really engage with this ridiculousness. So how do you find these two things go together in the process of this piece? Well, it is kind of a, it's a little bit of a departure for us that it's a little more dark and serious than we have, but it's still going to be, a, it's still a comedy because just life and the circumstances that we find ourselves in and circumstances which we may leave this world are ridiculous. A lot of the improv also comes out of who Ella Harris is going to just vary from night to night to night, because again, it's going to be a lot of audience participation of telling us, the cast, who this person is. Like, for instance, we have seen with the investigators going through the apartment, trying to find not just items of value to add to the state that the city needs in order to process. I hate to use such a generic and such a cold term for what we do with people after they pass, but just process this body and identify it will bring up people from the audience who also serve as investigators who kind of go through props and items and pictures and cards that we're going to have on the stage and pull out different things that they think might be important. And then we show scenes of that using those objects or those costume pieces or whatever from this particular life. So we're kind of building the clues of who this person might have been throughout the structure until the very end where we kind of have a little bit of an obituary. So yeah, so it really depends on the audience. We also have Questions for the audience about what is important to you. What are what do you hold dear? What advice do you have that inspire various monologues throughout the piece? I do remember the article that there were these interviews with the various government workers who were touching upon dealing with this, you know, finding dealing with helping this particular body who was a person come to their final rest. And they had some very moving quotes for that. At first, when I put the structure together, I used actual quotes from the article, but then we decided, well, no, it might be more interesting to have people who are coming to see the show write what they would say. So, yeah, so, and it is going to be, it is still going to be funny because just, you know, just people are funny. So it's not going to be serious, serious, death, 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 because that's not who we are. You know, that's not, how people remember you or what your some of your life is and just mm -hmm. it's not all of us just anticipating the end mm -hmm. 
It's just everybody lives in the moment because that's just life that everybody lives in the moment. Right. Great. Also, you need to use humor to deal with these kind of moments in life, coping mechanism, whatever, you know, like when my mom passed away, she was in Colorado and we had to get her back to Long Island for burial because we're Jewish. We had to get her back in like one day. And we were like making jokes about, oh, well, let's rent a station wagon. We'll put her on top of the station wagon and drive her over. <laughs> you know, like this is, you need to use humor sometimes to to deal with things. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, finding levity definitely does help deal with the darkness. And yeah, I really like how this idea of the audience having a lot of say in who this person is, I think that does reflect the themes and gives a good justification for why it is an improvisational piece of theater and an improv company that is telling this story in this unique way. So I'm sure people will get a lot out of that and probably get a kick out of it too, which is interesting to approach it from this comedic perspective. So I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I read on your website that this piece was originally scheduled for 2020. And now I don't know if that means that it premiered in 2020 or if it was intended to premiere. I see the shaking of heads. <laughs> what a year that was. Remember that year? Um, but no. Yeah, something happened. It's all a blur. But, but, <laughs> that was a chill year. Yeah, no, we were all we all had fun times. You know, we had Tiger King. It was great. Yes. Yeah, but since, you know, this is a pretty large gap between the original conception of the piece, if it was scheduled to be presented then, and now finally getting up on its feet here in 2023, how has the project been, like, evolved or developed during these intervening years? Well, I'll start by saying, like, yeah, we did intend that we were actually in the middle of one production performing, we got as far as two two performances before we were completely shut down of a show called Diner on the Edge. And we were in pre-production and starting rehearsals for Lonely Death. And I was ex- I was very much in denial about like what was going to happen. None of us knew, but I was like, oh, we'll be back. Oh, we're going to miss a few rehearsals. Oh, and of course, everything yeah. shut down. It'll be, we'll be back in two weeks. Yeah. It'll be two months. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it'll be another two months maybe but that's all <laughs> so then when we did come back i was like well we're not going to do this show first don't have people dying, <laughs> like, dying alone in their apartments <laughs> i was like maybe people don't want that right now i don't want that right now so we soon <laughs> too soon so we did a couple of shows we did like i was when vicky was talking about her wedding show i was reminded we did like a bachelorette show and we did like what did we do coming back? Stand up. Wow, we no, no. We before did. that, we did. Oh, we did the uh, Ernest Masks. Yeah, Musk. yeah. So we did some very, uh, very silly shows coming out of the pandemic. Very silly, silly, silly. So now, but now I'm kind of like, okay, we're ready to do this now. We already put some work into this. I want to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm sure people will be really glad to, that you finally got it back up on its feet and. It sounds like enough time has passed that, you know, if comedy is tragedy plus time, then now's the time, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if other people in the room would like to comment on, you know, some of this development, if you were there for the original plan of the production to now, or if you're a new addition to it. But maybe if you could, some of you could comment on what first attracted you to the project, since it was not your own conceptions, unless you're Nanette. Well, you know, if I could just chime in. Think that nothing has particularly changed radically from the original conception of the show to now because I, you know, we didn't 
do it because we were shut down. And then when we came back with people dying and dying and dying, it, it was not appropriate. And but now, you know, death is never funny. But as also as Evie mentioned, because I'm also Jewish and Jews have always historically dealt with tragedy through comedy which is why so many comedians are Jewish. That's the way you cope. It is a coping mechanism. And I think this is going to be Ernie's most esoteric show in terms of it making it. We don't make light of anything, but you have to deal with all the tragedies of life in a manner that gets you through it. And there is much levity. It's like, you know, thinking of Mel Brooks. What could possibly be funny about the Third Reich? Well, he did it in The Producers. He somehow managed to make the Third Reich hysterical. And that's uh, well, same thing with Cowboys and Indians. What could be funny about, about uh, you know, Cowboys and Indians? Well, he did Blazing Saddles and he made it hysterical. It's just that when you can remove yourself and look down at the scenario, you find those absurdities of life. And when you're doing this show, and even when we've been rehearsing it, you could see how, without giving away too much, there's one instance where we do a scene and then we go back and do the scene through the strong point of view of one character and then go back and do it again through the strong point of view, an opposite point of view of another character. And that is, you know, how, as Nanette said, all of life plays out, whether any of us have, you know, none of us can ultimately control our legacy or our narrative. And when somebody like a George Bell or AKA Al Harris in a sense, gives up on their own identity by being a shut-in, by being a hoarder, by disconnecting from everybody else. It becomes up to the rest of the universe to not let that person completely just go into a potter's field as a bag of bones, but to define the essence of that person and, in a sense, keep them alive. And what the New York Times did was took somebody who never would have been known and made them into, and now George Bell is an iconic person that had been memorialized by that article. And we're taking a fictional version and we're memorializing in our commuted production. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So let's, I think I do want to hear more from the cast yourselves. So you all play multiple characters in this piece and, you know, I was curious going into this that because it is improvisational, how much do you know about your characters going in or do you come up with new characters on the fly? How rigid or fluid is it? So maybe we could just hear a little more about your characters and your processes for approaching this material through the vehicle of improv. Vicky, we haven't heard from you in a while. Would you like to go first on this? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, for me, really, if it's any sort of early show, it's kind of like, it, for me, the character sort of builds as we go along. Like, the first show I ever did with y'all was, what was it? It was something Ernestine McCluskey. It was like a parody off of... Uh, <laughs> yeah. The Marvelous Mrs. McCluskey. 
marvelous Mrs. McCluskey. It was just as we rehearsed, I was playing this character called, I think, like Sylvia Smith. <laughs> as I kept like going along, I was like, okay, I have this thing as a costume. Like I have this like cheetah coat thing that I like wore. I was like, okay, this would be fun. And then it was as we were rehearsing, I was like, okay, now she's sort of a slimy character. Oh, now there's this sort of like rivalry with like another clown and just kind of kept building and building and building. So once we finally opened, it was like, there was Sylvia Smith. And I mean, it's kind of the same thing, the writer in me. When we, basically what with any Ernie show is usually in the back, there's like a table with like a bunch of props, wigs and stuff that we can use as the show goes along and, you know, improvise. So props can change and stuff. And I remember there's this like plastic tiara that I absolutely <laughs> love. And I was like, okay, I'm a Riker's inmate. I don't, just the juxtaposition of just like tiara with like this big, like buffy dude to me. I was like, this is funny to me. Now let me see where this goes. And then, yeah, Sam and I, we've done it, I think like, twice now with both of us we've been doing it like this character has kind of just been building and building and building mm -hmm. wow hilarious yeah it's interesting so evie do you want to go next talk about your process with your characters yes i mean when we had our brainstorm i was thinking about using some characters that i've done in the past mm -hmm. you know like i have this musical theater actress tammy sue dixon and I thought maybe I'd bring her in, but it's kind of, we're kind of still discovering things in the rehearsal. So now I don't have the solid development, but like this, these are costumes. This is my costume piece for one scene where I'm in the apartment and I'm a prospective new renter of this apartment. So we're there with the real estate agent. And, you know, I was just like, oh, this is a fun, you know, like you can kind of get into your character with a little costume piece and it kind of helps you to find things that way but um yeah i'm it's you kind of you can't really prepare for it mm -hmm. you know that but then the as you yeah as you mm -hmm. do and everybody says what you do you rehearse improv <laughs> right but yeah. this is what we're doing we're rehearsing we have a certain structure in mind but we're not doing the same scene every time we're not mm -hmm. doing the same lines every time we're making it up each time but we know where we're going to go with certain points and then the characters will start to to develop as you put on these costume pieces. And, you know, like last last night we did the funeral attendee scene. Nanette and I were both funeral attendees and we each had these scarves and sunglasses. And, it, you know, was, how could a funeral scene be funny? But, it, you know, it's like those characters came out. Yeah. And it's just like the characters saying like ridiculous, like how... Why would you even talk like this at a funeral? But some, you know, it's like some people might do that. <laughs> Sam? I was just going to say, just capitalizing on what Evie just said, how much the props, you know, just grabbing something helps you, inf you know, informs you as to a character. But of course, improvisation is you get your cues from the other actors. Mm -hmm. So if someone starts a scene however they uh, are defining themselves you take that in and then you react to that so nothing is ever the same even though technically the structure is the same or the profession of the person like my cop character but in every time we do it it's just a, it's a different reaction to whoever's doing it with me and whoever happens to be the body 
or well, who's doing it with me is, uh, but how we enter the location at that moment in time, how we're feeling, how, you know, that all changes in the split second. And since we rehearse at night, believe me, after a long day at the office, every time we rehearse, it's contingent upon what's, you know, what you're coming in with physically, emotionally, and everything else. Sometimes that could be formed just by your subway ride to the rehearsal mm -hmm. space. <laughs> nice. Uh, and Annette, you were also part of the cast. Would you like to comment outside of the creation and administrative role you play? What? How do you feel about the performance and your process approaching it on um, stage? Well, the process for other shows that we've done, we've developed these very solid characters that we go in with. For Lonely Death, I, everybody in the cast is doing something a little different and is approaching it in a different way, which I love, which I think is really great. For this particular one, I'm sort of steer, I'm playing with steering away from doing anything that's a character that that I necessarily have worked on a whole lot. Although I'm me, I'm that, so there are characters that I grab that just come out. So I try and like take it off of the other performer, like depending on the scene, take it off of the other performer. As Sam says, grab something without really paying attention from the table, either a costume piece or a prop, and not think about it and not choose it, but just grab it. And then what happens from where does that bring me? And I'm also playing with trying to do something different each time in rehearsal. So I don't know. I may find myself for a character that I really like and want to try and work on that and develop that more, or I may just keep changing it up because that's a little different than how I've approached other shows with Ernie before. So yeah, it's all about spontaneity and keeping your castmates on their toes. Yeah, it's great. So John, you've been patient. I'm very oh, curious yeah. to hear. It's very rare that we have musicians, especially as part of casts of shows on the on our show. So you have all this live music that you created and play in the show. So I'd like to, if you'd like to talk about how it factors into the show, I, maybe we'll start with by just me asking, are these shows that you have written in it, or sorry, music that you've written in advance to play during the show, or do you improvise the music as part of it? I do not improvise the songs because okay. that's actually was interesting what Vicky was saying about improvised musicals. So yes, one can improvise music, and I have sometimes taken one or two of the pieces and improvised like we had Silent Night. I used to do a bit of improvisation on Silent Night and try and just change it up every once in a while. So it, it kind of sounded different every time we did that. But mostly what I find is that it, it distills my songs rather than explodes them. For instance, in the last show where we, I wrote a Christmas song, but I had that Christmas song structure of it the verses only of it and a groove for it for years and years decades even and being in the show with a christmas theme allowed me to finish it and bring the song to completion and so i brought a complete song to the show and in this show i created a new song i love my garbage and actually it's one of my favorite songs i've written in a while and it's really very good on the topic of hoarding, I suppose. You know, I lived vividly with hoarding because my mother was a hoarder and, and she did die alone in her house to some what the causes of hoarding and her own choices. So with this show, I feel connection with it in, in that specific show, but I do usually bring completed songs or, as I say, distill them 
there's another song I'm singing in the show called People Die. And folks have liked, liked that for a long time, but I haven't played it out live too often. Hmm. And what happened was I realized it was imperfectly written and I've sharpened up and I've rewritten that. And now it's and perfect. Really, huh? And now it's perfectly written. <laughs> well, I don't know, perfectly written. I mean, that's a big claim because I'm very much an imperfect person. And <laughs> Are we all? I'm more pleased. I'm, what I'm saying about it is now my I'm able to sing it with more gusto and feeling and righteousness because I say, God, this is right now. I really believe what I'm saying, you know, whereas before I think I used to, I didn't look at it long enough to realize that there was flaws in the lyrics. There's nothing wrong with the music or the structure or the layout. It could perhaps be one verse too long, but we, we'll forgive that for the moment. These are technical aspects I, I get into. Um, so I don't know if people die one verse too long. Maybe somebody will tell me. I double up the verses at the start, so I call that one verse. First verse is two. The first verse is one big long verse. So maybe you're beating the system. <laughs> I don't stick. I, I'm gaming the system. You got it, man. It's called the Munley method. Yeah, yeah. so I'm gaming the system. <laughs> Trademark. I'm not sticking a chorus or a pre-chorus or a lift or anything in between the first two verses. So maybe the ver first two verses are a place place setting. But anyway, I've rewritten that too. Like I rewrote the Christmas song and made it. Wow, this is a great song now. Um, it was never complete. This People Die feels complete to me. So the, the structure and the bringing it to, to Erty's process allows me to look deeply on the song from a number of ways that I don't examine in other rock and roll and performative processes, you know, because I want it to be hitting the right notes and be affirming the theme. So I do like to, if at all possible, match the emotional curvature of the, the play. And I want to be have that musical theater headspace where, in a way, I want to bring the heart to 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 it because songs are unconscious. Like the language of music can seep in where other ways, you know, people can feel about a song the way they may not feel about the plain words. So it may be that music goes in two parts of the brain, two ears, two parts of the brain. And so the words are processing in one side and the music is processing in another and the synthesis is exploding into joy and saying, oh, this synthesis is nice. You know, the two parts of my brain are sizzling. So anyway, that's me getting into my sort of songwriting craft. But maybe it's interesting for you to hear that. Mm -hmm. The other song I'm writing, the other song I bring whole and complete to the show is called Disappointed Me. So I wrote that to process the grief I had about being an immigrant. 20 years away and my father dying. She not so, a couple of years after I got to America, me not, I was stuck a job. I was stuck in the slavery of the American way of working no days off. And the good thing about COVID is that that knocked that bit on the head, you know, saying, well, we're home with the family. Maybe my family is important too, not just working. So I didn't have enough days off to get back and see my father and had a lot of grief because <coughs> grief is a thing and I had a lot of grief so I wrote it and it's sort of a I feel in the recorded version it's a kind of a majestic anthem type of track it's not really I hope it's not too sad I'd have to ask to the folks on it no I think it's wow it's beautiful I, I like it a lot <laughs> yeah. so do I yeah you no know, I again I like a song I don't play that song live and this structure and I thank Annette and Erty and everybody else to allow me to bring a song that I don't play live and to bring it and have an audience who would listen to it 
and actually listen to the words and listen to the music and get it, which is, and they're only that far away from me. They're a couple of feet away from me, and it's a very intimate space. I'm being intimate with my thoughts and my words and my integrity. I believe these things I'm saying, these are things that happen to me or things I feel are right and true, and I'm bringing them into a world of suspended judgment and suspended, what do they call it? With the suspend disbelief. Suspend disbelief. And we're in a world and we're creating a world. And you you're all theatre people and, and, and I'm learning about this theatre world where we're creating a world, people making into a world. And they're walking out and saying, God, I feel different now. I feel more chummy with humanity. I'm gonna smile at somebody going home. That lasts only five seconds in New York now that's true. <laughs> Oh, what a glorious five seconds it is. <laughs> it is a glorious yeah. time. It is, it, we are trying to change people's. So I hopefully am learning to, to, I want to be more feeling world in my songs. And I was feeling very feeling. I played that song I wrote, I Love My Garbage. I was feeling very feeling. I was really in touch with my emotions. And I didn't grow up in a country or a place that is, allows you to have emotions. From. But I was feeling very emotional last Thursday. And I went to an open mic that's close to me that I used to go to. It was the first time back there since 2019 or since COVID, you know, and I'm returning to a space I used to be comfortable in, meeting people I hadn't met in years or I hadn't met there in years. I meet them in the neighborhood. They're neighborhood people. And I had a drink and I brought my Italian neighbor. Do you remember the Italian neighbor I brought to the show? Yeah. yeah my Italian And so we're having a good time. I'm neighboring and friending and I'm feeling emotional. Somehow my emotions are connecting with my doings and the song just erupts and I and somehow I'm connected and the audience are connected and people are connected and that energy is there. So I want to bring that to the drama of the show and true music and song. It's what musical theatre is about, isn't it? So I'm yeah. trying to learn that by doing it and bringing my musical theatre piece to fit into the IRT. So we are doing something very different. I'm taking this very seriously and very lightheartedly too, that, that trying to bring treasures to this theater, this little space, of, this little sacred space where we're being friends with each other. I was so relaxed and I felt so relaxed and warm and ho at home and in the, the environment there the other night. I was just liking being me with these people. It was just like, this is good. The other song, the final song I sing is one of my hits. It's called Angel's Tears. And it's about stillness. It's about the opening lines of it is, I'm not here to save the world. I can't even help myself. can't organize my room, put my stuff back on the shelf. So it's still reflecting and knitting up with that theme. Uh, maybe not the theme of hoarding, but there is a part of hoarding and the, 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 the chaos of that um, in that song. And it seems to, I feel, I'm hopeful it settles the... the Sometimes at the end of a song, there's a beat and the song settles and there's a good feeling when the, the last chord rings out. So in a sense that I'm hoping to bring that as the song brings a chord after the final obituaries. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a spiritual song as well, but not heavy handed, not heavy, not hitting anybody on the head, but just saying there's a possibilities of other powers out there. And I think artists know that because we get stuff. And we don't know where it comes from. It would be very self-righteous of us to say, I come from nowhere. I'm just a self-made man. 
I'm a whole creaturehood of humans who made their being alive allowed me to be alive and me being here, you know. My grandfather, his whole family died of TB, another plague, another thing. And he survived to, to, to marry my grandmother, to, to bring my mother into the world, to bring me. You know, so luck, fate, happenstance were here, and there may be other. I refer to the, those forces as angels in this, in this, in this song. But, but like AA says, it's whatever you want to do. You call it what you want. Just, you know, find something that works for you. So that's really it. It's a non. I guess that's all I've got to say. Unless anyone else has got anything else, they cover the stuff. Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And yeah, it really sounds like you've written some special songs, and they should probably have a big impact on the people who come see the show and really guide them along this journey. I also just can't shake the feeling that a song called "I Love My Garbage" should hopefully one day get picked up by Sesame Street to be sung by Oscar the Grouch. Um, yeah. If yeah. anyone from the Jim Henson Company is watching yeah. this or comes to see the show, hopefully they write you a letter and get that song. That would be a dream come true yes. for me. Seriously, that sort of thing. I used to do pitches and stuff. Um, uh, that would may your what is it? Your lips to God's ear or something? Yeah. Well, there yeah. You Sesame Street's ear. Yes, big bird's ear. <laughs> big bird's ear, you got it. Oh, well, well, that I think covers all the questions I had about the show itself. I guess just I have the information here for anybody who's heard all of this, stuck with us this long and wants to see the show because they think it sounds really interesting. It's going to be playing from February 17th to March 11th on Fridays and Saturdays. The shows from 8 to 9.30 p.m. at the Producers Club in New York City. So the run, as I said at the beginning, the run has already begun by the time this goes live, but you've missed one week, but there's still other options to see it and plenty of opportunities. So rush out, get your tickets. It should be a great time. Before we do bid adieu, there's just a couple more things, I guess, about what's on the horizon that we could cover. So Nanette and Robert, what's next for Erdy after this production ends? Do you already know what your upcoming projects are? Oh, gosh, this is the uh, end of our season. So yeah, this is the end of our season. So well, I suppose what happens what I like to do is I like to get together at some point and sort of talk about the what's happened in the season and what's good what maybe we can change something up about like that and then the next thing would be party of everybody who's helped us and who's part of the cast and we may do some festivals or a fringe festival or two in the interim yeah we do like to go to fringe festivals and also you know these we'll start discussing what could be the next season of shows so that's I have some ideas. Okay, I'm sure you do. They come from everywhere. <laughs> yeah, so after you officially eulogize El Harris, you will begin the postmortem of this process and see what needs to be come up with next. Well, that's great. Okay. And I'm curious about the rest of you, if any of you have upcoming projects or other things as artists that you're working on, if you'd like to use this space to plug those and maybe also just plug if you have social media handles or a website or places where our lovely viewers and listeners can find you and follow you and your work, this would be a great opportunity for you to share that. So why don't we start with Evie? Do you have anything coming up or anything you'd like uh, to share? Well, nothing specific. I'm still working on stand-up a little bit, but, you know, thinking about maybe doing a solo show, but it's very slow and, you know, the inspiration is coming slowly. 
but I keep grabbing ideas, but nothing, nothing else scheduled. I do have some films, short films that I made on my YouTube channel, which is Evie Aronson, A-R-O-N-S-O-N. And my favorite project that I ever worked on is a parody of Apocalypse Now. It's called <laughs> A Pucker Lips Now. A Pucker Lips Now. That yes. is brilliant. And it was filmed at a friend of mine who was a hairdresser on Long Island in his, you know, studio. And, you know, the main characters were of Wilford Academy of Beauty. And it all is based on the line, I love the smell of lip balm in the morning. But so that's well done. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite project that's up there. It's called A Pucker Lips Net. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. And also anything that you plug specific, like social handles or YouTube channels, those can all go down. We'll put them in the description of this video and podcast episode so people can check them out. Sam, do you have anything coming up or anything you'd like uh, to share? I have a very busy day job, real job to earn a living to, to survive in New York. So it doesn't leave me a whole lot of time for projects. Of course, I am open to being cast in anything. Particularly radio plays, Vicky. Um, <laughs> no pressure. No cool. pressure. But it published a very large, massive coffee table book about my radio experiences when I was young. So it's partially written in screenplay format. So I have been working on trying to cut it down to a more viable Hollywood acceptable length. And I put that down for a while. So one of the things on my to-do list is to get back to that and work on editing that. And if anybody actually wants to see some pictures, they can see some pictures of the coffee table book at my Etsy store, which is at Manhattan Attic, not Attic like drug addict but <laughs> addict like on the yeah. top of her yeah. uh, new york city apartment but meant a-t-t-i-c so if anybody wants to take a look at that but i am certainly hoping to continue to perform with Ertie, which i for years called irte thinking it was like a deco artist or something like that but i finally call it Ertie. and else that anybody wishes to cast me in also, hint, hint. Also, what's <laughs> the name? Always be <laughs> what is the name of your coffee table book for people who would like to oh, rush out and it, read it? It, it, well, it's you can't rush because it's very fat, and uh, it's called "Ask Me How This Happens," <laughs> uh, because it was, uh, you know, it does deal with the whole hashtag Me Too situation. Only I imploded before the Me Too movement. Can I show you the cover? Yes, please. Get it on camera. I don't know yes. how, how I would just necessarily do that. Can you see it? Yes. It's it's great. Yeah. It's and this deals with, with who again, Sam? Oh, do we have to talk about don't say his name? I think you do. Oh, okay. I had actually in my radio life when I was very young, worked at three of the largest and most historic stations in the United States. And the last one being WNBC at 30 Rockefeller Plaza. And his name was John Donald Imus. And he is dead and I'm still here. He's but that's what, happens. that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know something? 
If you have to be traumatized out of your radio career, you might as well be traumatized by somebody who had four Marconi Awards, which is the highest award you could win in in radio broadcast. I guess that's the silver lining. (laughs) (laughs) You might as well well get killed off by probably, you know, a 50-year star. So, you know, what the hell? At the end of the day. They're all gone. They've all tried to blacklist you in one way or another. First, the drama teacher. And, yeah. Oh, and now, now you're still standing. You're still here. You're writing coffee I, table books. You're acting yeah. in improv shows. I, you got this. I have <laughs> to tell you, there's a song by Stephen Sondheim called I'm Still Here. Mm-hmm. It's from the musical Follies. It is my theme song. You have to sing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to sing it right now? I don't <laughs> sing. I cannot sing it. Uh, don't make Listen, me sing. I'll grab my laptop. We can, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, we we'll won't work put on you on the spot to sing. But thank you for sharing all of that. <laughs> Vicky, you were sideways for a moment, like a bat. But I see you have reoriented yourself. Recurred, yeah. <laughs> so would you like to plug any upcoming projects or social handles? I do have one thing. It's going to be open and done by the time it airs. But it's a thing called Eros Awakens. And it's like this weird sort of improvised valentine's yet also kind of this greek mythology artsy thing and butchwick of course oh okay so sorry to the people tuning into this who missed your opportunity to see it but you still get to brag about it it's (laughs) Uh, on the record for posterity yeah uh, the actual company is like uh, unruly collective they're like an artist collective in bushwick they're amazing right and is there anything social handles or websites or YouTube channel perhaps of your own that you'd like to plug we could put in the description here? Sure. I mean, you can follow me at Vicky Martin NYC on okay. Instagram. Great. We'll do that. If you want people following you, we can, <laughs> you know, give people an opportunity to see your other work. Hey, John, how about you? Well, I'm going to go all commercial now, if you don't mind. No, please. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh? Let's go. Let's go. Bring in the hot sauce. I make hot sauce. <laughs> you make hot sauce and you're just telling us now? <laughs> you buried the lead on that one. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is so good. I'm like, is the lead, so I have to recognize. Oh, yeah, these are all. Yeah, so these are some samples of types of sauce I make. I'm Hatwood hot sauce. This is a green one. This is an Antiguan trail sauce. I have an Irish hot brown sauce. Wow. Which is bread for steak and chops. I have. Mm. Oh god, this one, I love this one. This yellow one is a little Asian mixed with the Caribbean nature of mustard. And this, I think, is my favorite sauce I ever made. And if you haven't had this sauce... Making my mouth water just describing that. Just saying that. (laughs) Wow. Um, Seriously, I constantly purchase this stuff. I order from John all the time. I practically (laughs) bring this stuff down. It is so good. Mr. Basil Saucy Bits, it kind of sounds a bit rude, but that's okay. <laughs> it was kind of named after somebody who's certainly a slightly bit rude, but it really is a gorgeous sauce. So anyway, I've got lots of other sauces, wow. and I try and stay out of other people's offices and in be a free uh, agent in, in the sovereignty and integrity. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways I do that is by not begging on the streets, playing and begging putting my cap out, but producing something of value, hot sauce that people love, and it's available on hatwood.com. Hatwood.com. And you can follow me on Instagram. It's two T's, right? T-T-W-O-O-D. Sauce. Hatwood Sauce on Instagram. And musically speaking, I ought to do more. But I like this CD, but people 
So I don't have the cover for it, but I made a, an art piece where I did all the 50 or 100 pieces of individual cover art. This is the actual inside CD, but it stands for Expanding Universe XU. Um, you can find that. Follow me on john.monnelly on Instagram, or please play those on. Not saying I make any type of a living off Spotify, but I am on Spotify and some music okay. and the international web for people to find me. And you find all those tracks. I uh, like disappointed me will be on there. And one of the things I used to do was a lot of YouTube videos, not so much anymore, but I have a YouTube channel and it might be Laugh John Laugh. It used to be known as Laugh John Laugh due to a childhood name uh, which known as the family. Um, my mother partly leaned in or no, my neighbour leaned into the cot cradle and said, Laugh John Laugh and I would laugh. <laughs> we would say Laugh John Laugh. So I had a channel called Laugh John Laugh. Wow. Uh, But life isn't as funny anymore. So so we will put all of that in the description. So if Big Bird wants to find you, he he has plenty of options. And he can buy some sauce while he's at it. Buy some sauce. I probably, yeah. Got some great sauces up in in Canada. I know for sure. See you guys up in, but this is good stuff too. I have to purchase a few bottles. It looks amazing. Thank you, Canada. Oh, Canada. One of my uncles, my remaining uncle is up there. Oh, Canada. Oh, really? Maybe I know him. Yeah. It's, it's not that big a country. He's a Monolly. Look him up. Monolly. Yeah. I'll, I'll there is I think my cousin might be involved in the wine reviewing business. Okay. So he might be online somewhere as well. Hello. Cousin. Hello. I'll get lunch with him next he week. We're <laughs> practically neighbors. But we have good cousins. I have good connections with my cousin here. Mm-hmm. Great. Robert, would you like to plug anything personal outside of Erdy or anything else? Yeah, no, not much else really. Like I'm, I'm like Evie is toying with the idea of developing a solo show, but it's sort of like one of these things that's in its infancy and then gets put to the side when, you know, things happen. And then I start thinking about it again. And somewhere there is an independent film I'm in that's supposed to premiere sometime, but it had a lot of Latin American kind of production people and then something happened over the last two years and people sort of went back to their other countries and I've been assured it's in slow post production so I don't know when that might well might premiere. Well yeah when it eventually comes out like send it to us or send us the name and we can retroactively put it in the description if anyone wants to see it. All right. It's called Garden of Hope. Garden but, of Hope. Okay, yeah. so when that Garden of Hope eventually it. comes out, check it out, everyone. <laughs> sorry, John, did you have your hand up? Do I don't you want to, add? to interrupt Robert. Mm-hmm. Robert, um, sorry about that. Are you finished? Yeah, go ahead. Garden of Hope sounds interesting. Yeah, I forgot to mention I do some writing on Monolly Motors, M-U-N-N-E-L-L-Y, Motors, M-U-T-T-E-R-S dot com. So I'm going to and I have a newsletter. You're welcome to sign up to that. I like doing that, tell people what I I'm up to. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. We'll add that as well. And Annette, take us home. Anything personal and anything for Erdy as well, if they have their own social media handles or if you want to plug the website? Yeah, well, personally, I also perform with another actress called Grace Tan, named Grace Andors. I call her Grace Andors. Her parents named for that. And we do improvisation as well. And we have a show called, right now, we have Double D, D. <laughs> for Dorsen DC. Ah. Um, 
And we've developed a lot of different shows together and have done festivals and theaters. And our latest show is called The Vol Sisters Invite You to an Intimate, a Peculiar and Intimate Evening of Mystic Spiritualism, in which we play two con artists posing as mediums who have an improvised, very interactive seance that goes. So we did that at New Jersey Rep recently, and we're looking to book that at other theaters as well. And for Ertie, our handles are... Our website's irteinfo.com. Our Facebook is irteinfo. As that's also the handle for our Instagram and Twitter. If anyone still is on Twitter, is irte underscore improv. Yeah, less and less people are still there, but <laughs> if you happen to be Elon Musk watching, that's where you'll find it. Yeah, Elon. The show. Maybe people will throw cabbages at you if you come to the show. Right. <laughs> that's the sort of audience of Twitter is cabbage yeah. throwers. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you all so much. This has been such a fun conversation. Again, people check out the show, The Lonely Death of L. Harris. And yes, oh, do we have a program emerging on the screen, Abby? It's a postcard. It's a postcard. And it's there's got the, there's the L. Harris's door, 19D. <laughs> oh, I can't get that close to it, but it's my apartment 19D, what L. Harris. So- you should so, check on L. Harris, 19 Yeah, let, let's see <laughs> how L. Harris is doing. Maybe he could use a friend right now. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you all so much. I hope the, the run goes well. And this is, yeah, it's been so great having you all here. And yeah, thank um, you so much. Man. Yes. Thank, great fun thank, thank, thank you. you so much. Take care, Appreciate everyone. It. Have a great night and cheers. 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 Cheers.